Gangary the Podcast is made possible by the Ashland University Journalism and Digital Media Department. As Ohio's only converged media program, Ashland JDM is training tomorrow's journalists and media creators for media careers in the 21st century. For more information, visit Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department online at ashland.edu slash JDM. Or head to the JDM blog at ashlandmedia.blogspot.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. This is Matt Tullis. This week I talk with Mike Sager. Sager is a best-selling author and award-winning reporter who has been called the beat poet of American journalism. He currently works as a writer-at-large for Esquire magazine and is also the editor and publisher of the Sager Group, a consortium of multimedia artists and writers. Sager recently co-edited the book Next Wave, America's New Generation of Great Literary Journalists. He's also released a collection of his own magazine stories called The Someone You're Not, as well as a novel titled High Tolerance. Sager began his journalism career in the Washington Post newsroom, working for Bob Woodward. He went on to write for dozens of high-profile magazines, including GQ, Playboy, Rolling Stone, Vibe, Spy, and Interview, among many others. In 2010, he won a National Magazine Award for profile writing, for his story on former NFL quarterback Todd Marinovich. As usual, we've linked to many of Sager's stories on our website. You can find that at www.gangrythepodcast.com. You can also find out more about Sager at mikesager.com. Mike Sager, thanks for joining Gangry the Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. (laughs) Uh, Let's start by talking about an anthology that that you've just put out um, through your publishing house, The Sager Group. It's called The Next Wave and is co-edited by yourself and Walt Harrington, and it features some of the best young reporters who are currently writing literary journalism. What made you want to put that book together? Well, it's kind of a funny story. It's a great story for writers, I think. I don't know. Um, maybe many of us have had a, a very influential editor in the past who we we're really super close to, a mentor, uh, which is uh, Walt Harrington was my mentor at the Washington Post. And I mean, I he used to edit my stuff. He was the one who first asked me, had you ever read Tom Wolfe? And I said, who? And uh, I didn't, you know, he gave me this amazing education. And I used to go to his house to eat dinner with his wife would be cooking, you know, and all this stuff. He was like, he seems so much older. He was about eight years older, but he seemed ancient at the time. Um, I was like 21. He was like 28 or 29. And, uh, but long story short, we used to have a lot of arguments in the Washington Post newsroom. We used to like yell at each other a lot. And, uh, it was just what these wonderful arguments, you know, some people you can argue with and some people you can, and I value a good argument, which is one thing I miss having moved to the West coast where people don't like to argue. It makes them feel bad. Um, but, um, Walt, uh, went from the Washington Post to become uh, uh, head of uh, the head of the communication school at Illinois for a time. You know, he did all the jobs uh, at University of Illinois in the journalism department, and he's got a very influential collection called uh, Intimate uh, Journalism, which many, many people have had as textbooks along the way. Um, anyway, it was a few years ago, and Walt's been teaching college for, you know, 20 years. And we stayed in touch, and I love him dearly, and I go to his course and, and all that stuff. But he's, he, I felt like he'd become a little institutionalized. And he was telling me that journalism was dead, 
and then long form was dead. And you know, the, the whole thing we were having post 2008 when everyone was saying that stuff, um, and this was about 10. And he said, and I'm saying, no, it's not dead. I have all these young guys I'm in touch with, uh, you know, Justin Hecker, you know, the whole, all those guys in the book, you know, uh, many of whom I was in touch with, many of whom writing I was reading, and they were like totally into it. And it wasn't dying. And there was this disconnect between what they were teaching people in the college, which, and then I, I mentor a lot of college kids, so they're coming at me saying this, and I'm like, well, that's not true. You know, there's this, that, and the other. They're, I mean, it is true they're paying less, but um, other than that, uh, it's a thriving market. So out of that conversation debate with Walt Harrington, I said, and I will prove it to you, I will collect a book, you do it with me, and I will collect a book because I have this young book company and I think it's a great freaking idea to show people what's out there. And then... You know, uh, sorry, I am a long-form writer, and I guess I give long-form answers. But, you know, the best thing that turned out with the book, there's some amazing stories in there. Uh, Wright Thompson, and, um, you know, you have the whole list there. You can help me out. I should have the book in front of me. I'm such a bad publicist. Yeah, I was, um, I was excited. But, uh, we we have uh, eight of the people who are in the book have been featured on the podcast. Uh, and this, you're going to be episode 19. So eight out of our 18 episodes were people who are in the book. Right. So, I mean, um, it's, it's just, it's a wonderful book of good stories, but I think the best part of the book really is the authors afterwards that are after every story. I got one of these young guys to just write about something and, you know, about working and what it means to him or her. And, you know, the great thing was that each, each person's take on what, tugged a heartstring, tugged at a heartstring of mine. And they were so, became so universal, which is really what I love about the genre. It's like you can, if you, you can pick any small story and you hopefully find the universal in it that tells a lesson for everyone that can understand. So, um, and that's what these little, uh, little things do. And, you know, there's Pam Karloff, Ariel Levy. Um, um, I, I'm drawing blanks. I have to get the book. I know there's uh, Michael Cruz, um, Wright Thompson, Thomas Lake, um, Will Hilton. Hilton, Hilton. I probably said yeah. that wrong. Um, Luke Dietrich. Yeah, Luke Dietrich. A lot of a lot of great stuff in there. Uh, it's great. I'm sorry. I'm so uh, I'm so old that I can't remember lists of names or words for anyone out there. But it's really great stuff, and I enjoy doing it. And, and if I may continue, if I'm not burning out my time here, um, some interesting stuff happened because as soon as I finished the book, it's 19 people. Um, I started sending out some emails to get some, and we ended up getting some great blurbs from people like Adam Moss and. Um, um, Graydon Carter and everybody gave us great blurbs but um, almost the first blurb I got back was from the head of the UC, uh, USC's journalism department, a woman who said there's only 6% women in this book and I, well first of all she's a journalist and she did her math wrong because 3 of 19 I think is about 16% someone who does math told me um, but she was right and it was weird because we had had two female grad students really collect these things and the only the thing, the, the, the guidelines we went by they had to be under 40 years old at a certain 
cutoff date, and they had to write in third person. I didn't want to do a first person book, and and there just was there was so little women's writing, um, and we went out with this thing, and you know we're going to journalism schools with this sort of like alternative textbook, which is selling for nine ninety nine instead of seventy dollars. You know, which is what like Harrington's book sells for seventy in paper and one forty in um, hardback. And this is one of the things he wanted to do: was make a book that's nine ninety nine and eighteen ninety five, and the and you can get a ten percent student discount, so it's less. Um, this is what we were trying to do. Um, so anyway, long story short, we went to Mizzou. They had a big about four or five of the guys in the book turned out to be from Mizzou. So we were all there at Mizzou. They were having a a really wonderful thing for the book, and um, you know, women were talking to me because it's seventy percent, like seventy percent female <laughs> journalism students. So you know, and uh, some of the professors there, I'm really close with, and and then these two young women really came up and put it in a nutshell for me, um, and um, and so I kind of vowed right there that we should do. I mean. First of all, I think there's a reason why there's more men doing this than women, and it's simply because none of the rich women's magazines want to pay for the crap. Mm -hmm. And you know, I'm sorry, you can say whatever you want, you can get mad at me for saying this, but you know, Esquire and all the sports things, they're, they're trying to put women in the mix, but they're men's magazines. Mm -hmm. They're made for men, they exist, and we always have a few women writing, because we love women's voices, but men write about what men want to hear so and i don't know why all these big magazines that are this thick you know can have more journalism and that's going to be part of what i'm going to be doing but um we're collecting a three uh, it's actually a four volume set of women in journalism um next and and there's there's three volumes we're working on now there's a one's called newswomen which includes 20 you know famous pulitzer winning newspaper journalists starting with like Edna Buchanan, you know, all the, you know, Loretta Tofani, Athelia Knight, Christine Brennan, you know, Dana Priest, we, you know, all these hardcore, and this one woman I love from the world of um, alt-weekly is Christine Pelichek, who uncovered the, the sleeper, the grim sleeper story, um, and who's like a younger Edna Buchanan. Um, so that's like one set, those are 20 women, and then there's, um, 40 more women in a two-volume set called The Stories We Tell, which are um, long-form stories, but we've already got Didion and Steinem in there. And so we've got, like, I kind of refer to it as the OGs and the new Jills, because we've got, like, volume one and volume two. Um, so we got coming up to date, we'll have all the way up to date, you know, in the second volume of Today's People, um, some of these great writers writing for New York Magazine and The New Yorker, and um, some for Esquire, and, um, and then we'll go back in time. So it's a really huge project we're doing now to interview everyone, and I can't ask these famous women to write afterwards. So we're gonna, we have the two women who I helped um, from Mizzou who started this thing called The Riveter, theriveter.magazine.com, and they're, um, so they're working with me, you know, being helping to be the manpower, women power, person power, on uh, this project too, and also that way we get to sort of fund the Riveters project by you know me paying them. Um, we're we're kicking around the idea of a Kickstarter thing. Sixty women have to be interviewed, and sixty bios, sixty afterwards. It's going to be a, a I wanted to say f ton of work, which is one of my new favorite words. <laughs> um, I won't say that, but 
anyway, look, look for those things. We're real, I'm really excited about them. And it's fun, and it's, it's a lot of work. But it's kind of like my son's in college right now, so I don't have to do any laundry or do any dinners. or So this is what I'm doing in my spare time. Now, that sounds like a great project. Uh, uh, can you talk a little bit about how you kind of sorted through um, – and came came up with the 19 uh, reporters who were in that book. Can you talk a little bit more about how how you narrowed that down to 19? It was really hard, but I think the main top the main uh, things were the age. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one kills me because we excluded one woman, Paige Williams, who's mm-hmm. amazing, right. and she's at Harvard. And you know, I'm working with my boy, Walt, and he's a professor, and I'm sorry, Walt, I love you, but you're a little OCD, and Paige was like a couple of months older than the cutoff date, and I was like, what the hell, because I'm like that guy who's a freelancer, and uh, Walt's a professor, and he's done this, he has this great lecture that I'm going to publish one day about, you know, fact versus fiction, you know, in journalism, but... He was right because then we would have to open up the search again and find, uh, you know, more whether we missed anybody. But basically, it was the date, and I eliminated first-person stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I love first-person stuff sometimes, but every story does not. And, and today, there's so much of that. I think it's the, you know, the blogism gone journalistic, where everything's got to be filtered through the self. And I'm just not that into it. I'd like to do a collection of that because. Honestly, probably the three or four most popular stories I've ever done have been written in first person, mm-hmm. and I think that's what connects with readers. But I think like any good thing, you can rub it up too much, <laughs> and then it's like not fun. So um, so those were really the two things, and then we collected these two huge piles of stuff, and you know what? This, these people just rose to the top. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the stories in there are so amazing. Um, the one I'm thinking of, I'm, I'm so bad. Why don't I have a book in front of me? <laughs> Can, you're going to edit this? Um, I usually put them up pretty straightforward, so I think oh, we're good. Okay. Can you hit pause? Hit pause. Hit pause. <laughs> hit pause. <laughs> Let's take a break. Well, how about we take a break and uh, we'll come back with uh, more from Mike Sager. Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department is the only fully converged and integrated media program in Ohio. JDM majors apply converged skills in practical, hands-on labs using state-of-the-art hardware and software content creation tools. And they do it all alongside award-winning faculty who double as industry professionals. Recently chosen as Ohio's best non-daily student newspaper, the Collegian covers our campus and beyond. Ashland's 3,000-watt radio station, 88.9 WRDL, broadcasts local news, sports, talk, and today's best music to mid-Ohio and to the world on WRDLFM.com. Meanwhile, AUTV20 brings campus news, sports, and events to life in more than 12,000 homes. Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department, creating converged digital media professionals for the 21st century. Find more information and apply today at ashland.edu slash JDM. This is Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. We're back with Mike Sager talking about his book, uh, The Next Wave, uh, featuring a lot of young, up-and-coming literary journalists. And now I've been smart enough to go get a copy of the book, which is 
you know, becoming a becoming a businessman, uh, you realize usually I'm just winging it with uh, questions. I have to say specific things, um, but you look through these titles, um, and some is newspaper work, and some is um, which I'm happy to say I, I see newspapers are finding that if they're smart, they'll use the long form journalism as something that they can offer. You know, as I'm not sure it's the thing you want to skim in the morning before going to work. That makes it difficult. I find that I read like six paragraphs of a lot of feature stories these days in the L.A. Times, for instance. But, um, you know, something like Todd Frankel, who writes about um, this million dollar bill that a guy found and trying to find out whether it was a real or counterfeit. Um, yeah, and I think that is I, one of my all-time favorite newspaper stories, I think. It's so good. Unbelievable. And Justin Heckert's story, Lost in the Waves from Men's Journal. What a beautiful, beautiful story. Um, you know, we have Chris Jones, who's sort of like the dean of these, you know, the 40 and under set, I think. Um, he writes his Ebert story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Michael Cruz, um, for the St. Petersburg Times, does a piece about uh, just this guy buys a house and finds a dead woman in the car at an auction. You know, yeah. he uh, buys this whole property that was abandoned. There's a dead woman in the car. And, and, and Cruz goes and discovers her life, which is just a classic mm-hmm. story. And, you know, there's a bunch of other stories. Max Potter, Tony Rehagen, Sanchez who I think is one of the upcoming stars. He's at 5280 Magazine these days. Um, I'm probably not allowed to say, but I just judged contests that he might have been in. I don't know. I always pick the wrong people. I have this weird sense of what good stories are. (laughs) Uh, Wickersham, Zengerly, Wright, of course, with his last days of Tony Harris, Wright Thompson, uh, who's just a great bear of a guy. Uh, I got to hang out with some of these guys. Dan P. Lee, Travis the Menace. Oh, these stories are great, you know. And and I've never felt like one writer should be guilty about other writing. I've always felt like in any given magazine, there's plenty of pages. Mm-hmm. So you're going to get your story. You're going to get your attention. And, you know, if it's good, it lasts. And I just, I love these young guys. And um, which is why I guess I do a little mentoring or talking to people and whatever. Because, you know, it's like, Another person that really gets it because no one else does. You know, we love this crazy writing thing and we do all these, we have this weird life and it's all dedicated to this one reason, which is kind of, we like to make ourselves laugh and cry at the keyboard (laughs) (laughs) Um, and get attention for it, I guess, if it's good. Uh, but I think that's what this is about in this book, Next Wave, America's New Generation of Great Literary Journalists. This is what Adam Moss from, the New York, from New York said. This collection is proof positive that ambitious, inspired, nonfiction storytelling has life in it yet. And even though they've gone to fewer issues in New York Magazine, as have all of our beloved magazines, um, you know, there is life and there are people doing it. And more and more of the people doing it are women. Mm-hmm. So, uh, although, you know what, there's always that. I was just at UC Irvine teaching a class, and there were 22 or three girls and women and one boy, one poor little boy guy <laughs> sitting in the middle, or a smart guy, one or the other, you know. Right. Um, 
But you know what? It's weird because I go to these classes and very often one person will contact me and I've been to a million classes. And you know what? That person is the one that ends up becoming something over the time. It's that person with the will to survive. So maybe that one little guy will be the one little person who makes it out of that class. Right. I know in the, in the introduction, you said something that resonates with me a lot. Um, and, and you say that in, the hand, in their hands, the craft of journalism is raised to art. Um, one thing I've come across a lot um, at creative writing conferences particularly is this thinking that journalism cannot ever be raised to art. I'm curious if you've run into that uh, and, and what your thoughts are. Well, yeah. I mean, um, God, we've come so far of a way that it's actually, it is accepted now. There's no, you know, and then there are these people saying this thing that they started saying, you know, back in the Tom Wolf era, and even through the era when I was at the Washington Post in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, um, there was always, a, among like the gray and white newspaper people, and then, you know, the people it used to be who taught colleges were just the newspaper people in college. So their ethos was the same, which was very similar to why Walt was, you know, uh, Walt Harrington was, was uh, towing the line that he was towing that journalism was dead because it felt like it was dead at newspapers. Um, <laughs> now I forget the end of this answer. What was the question again? <laughs> uh, I was just curious about your thoughts on, uh, I, and and like I said, I still run into it at, at times, is this oh, idea yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that journalism got, isn't I got, art. I got so incensed that I saw red and forgot the question. <laughs> but it's always been this, this freaking question about like what people are making up and what's not true. And I gotta tell you, you know, sometimes people make stuff up. I'm an editor now and I'm working with a writer and you know, it's like I made this stuff up to make a bridge. And I'm like, well, that's not how it works. You gotta be more clever than that. You like omit stuff or you take the two lines that you do have and you make it something else. And it's kind of like with this journalism, it's a four way stop, but there's no stop signs. And those of us who are smart enough to know that when you come to a four-way intersection, whether it's a stop sign or not, you need to stop, then you don't need a frickin' stop sign. You know, and we can practice this trade because there's a, um, an S-ton, an F-ton of, of situational ethics and gray areas involved in practicing the trade of, you know, from the point of how you deal with people you know, to how you find things out, to what you what you can guess or not guess, what you, you know, it's like it's a very delicate art. So there are a lot of naysayers, and I don't think this should be given into the hands of anyone. And every and and look, all my work is rigorously fact checked, and I'm thankful of it because I'm a guy known for my details. And then you've already heard my my math is horrible, so I get all the numbers wrong in every story. And the guys at Esquire save me. You know, they're so amazing. They have like a three-person fact-checking department. And, and you know, and I'm, I'm grateful for it. There were guys, um, um, David Halberstam was was like really mean when he would get fact-checked. I mean, I used to date a fact-checker so back in the day at Rolling Stone. So I would know this stuff. But, you know, so it's very important. You almost have to work harder. Mm -hmm. But what it is is a sense of art. 
I really think it's funny. Every day I think this almost. I need to stop thinking of it. But we used to say that certain people type like they're typing with their thumbs. Now everybody types with their thumbs on their stupid little uh, iPhones, which I can't do. I still use one finger. <laughs> but um, taking a set of facts and figuring out how to creatively use it, um, it's like a found art. It's a mosaic. Mm -hmm with all these things that you collect and you put in a bowl and then you create like this mosaic. There's little pieces of green glass, there's tiles, there's, there's you know, Cheerios, there's whatever you can find, but it's all real. And then the really cool part is, is that they don't exist except for the way you describe them. So you're actually describing that little piece of green glass into existence and then using it in a thing, but it's all real. And it really bugs me that so much of this stuff that um, when done in a half-assed fashion becomes not real. Mm -hmm. And I, I think my fourth collection of, of stories is called The Someone You're Not. And it's after one of the stories I did, but you know, it sort of like serves for the whole purpose of our job as a long-form journalist, and that is this. Every single story I've ever gone to, I read all the clips, I get there, and you know what? They're fucking wrong. Oops. They're freaking wrong. They just don't have the story right. And like, here's the greatest short example I can give you. One of my first stories about a high school narc who was killed in, in Midlothian, Texas, in the small town. And it was billed as this occult murder. And there were pentagrams. And they were found. They found animal parts from the sacrifices and blah, blah, blah. Well, it was lovely those days because schools didn't have a fence around them. And you could just wander onto the parking lot. And I wandered onto the parking lot at Midlothian High. And I ended up meeting, like the girlfriend of the guy who'd done it and this other guy who was along on the ride and they were into Slayer and ACDC. They like put that stuff on their notebooks the same way in 1974 I drew peace signs. Mm -hmm. There was no occult. There was no, there was this weird thing with a Ouija board in there somewhere, which somebody might have fueled the whole thing. But the point is we get the time to go in and do stuff. And I urge people today to remember that mm -hmm. because what they're doing is they're screwing us out of travel expenses and they're screwing us out of money. So it's like how much time can you go there and spend to get the truth? Mm -hmm. But the point is I have four collections of stories, MikeSager.com, and you know, every one of those stories are there because Rolling Stone, Esquire, GQ, or someone over the Washington Post let me go and spend time until I could say, no, MF, this is the true story. Mm -hmm. This is the someone you're not. You know, and this is what we do. We let the dust settle. All the stupid, like, you know, I mean, I was there before there were stupid tabloid people, and now I just wait till they're gone or I won't do it. Because I've just, I was in the in Pikeville, Kentucky, walking up to a person's house, and there were like divots in the lawn from like double tires from the satellite trucks, and it didn't matter if I was the coolest, chillest, most boo, you know, cool, understanding writer in the world. There were like tire treads in the poor guy's front yard that he he mowed, and he didn't care, you know. So. That's the one thing we have to watch out. And, you know, they do have their, they do have their, you know, I knew Janet Cook. I know of Blair and, and Glass. And, 
you know, these are the things we have to watch out for as journalists. Yeah. You mentioned uh, your collection, uh, The Someone You're Not, um, and uh, one of the stories in there is a profile of Pete, Pete Carroll called The Zen <coughs> of Big Balls Pete. Uh, at the time, he was on the verge of becoming a pro coach, right? Uh, and now he has just uh, won his first Super Bowl with the Seahawks. Can you talk a little bit about that story? How it well, came about? at the time, he was the winningest coach in college uh, football, and no one would ever have believed that he would have left, mm -hmm. which is a scene I always love to see when the faithful gather around and wring their hands and wonder why this amazing person has gone on to the next level and speculate about how he could come back. But the guy was cool. And, you know, around the same period of time, it's really weird. Like, uh, I know very little about football. I'm not a football fan. I, I was a soccer pussy in high school and college, you know, uh, and played lacrosse. I didn't even play baseball. I'm like these weird sport guys. But uh, which was interesting because that's the way I like to work, like a Martian landing in a new land. And like, oh, what does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? You know, and you don't see it with the prejudice that regular people see. And... You know, the thing I loved about the Todd Marinovich story, which is also in this book, mm -hmm. um, in a longer form than it ran in Esquire, um, is that Todd was this amazing athlete who just, the, you know what he didn't like? He didn't like the freaking coaches. Right. And he didn't like the way it was done. And he didn't like this whole quasi-military BS. There's an amazing series right now on the Esquire channel um, that it was weird. They sent me to write about these people kind of doing my job. It's a documentary about... Friday night tykes about eight and nine year old football players. And you know, it's San Antonio, Texas, and they're yelling and you know, I don't care about all that. I mean, I'm, but I'm not that kind of father. And I think I was a good father and a good coach because I took more like Pete Carroll's approach, which is a little bit of positive reinforcement, lower your damn voice. Nobody wants to be afraid of you and you model. You, I learned early on when I was trying to keep my to teach my kid to do a jump shot and I was wanting him to hold his hands and do this and do that. He would just get mad at me and run away at six years old. But then I noticed if I just played with him and didn't and then he would mimic every move I did. Mm -hmm. And that was he's 19 now. And that has been the hallmark of my fatherhood. You know, it's been modeling and then watching from afar and not getting overblown about stuff. And like these are the things that football doesn't teach. And these are the things that Pete Carroll does. Mm -hmm. You know, he has a certain, we called it the Zen of Big Paul's Pete. He has a certain Zen. He doesn't need this illusory military chain of command BS. And you know what? People respect you more. I've never had any trouble with respect on the field when I'm nice to people, and you know how many shoelaces I've tied, and try putting on those stupid six-year-olds when they have to have those weird shin guards that like are part foot and then they stink. Oh, my God. I think I've earned this knowledge. Right. <laughs> so um, reporting that, um, you were essentially on his hip the whole time for, what, a week or so? Yeah, about a week to ten days, and it was really bad because, like I said, um, I didn't know much about football. So there would be stuff that I would miss that I didn't understand, like famous coaches coming through. And he's, did you see so-and-so? And I'm like, was that the guy with the long hair? Like, no, he's the winningest coach of all time. Yeah, right. um, but I think the breakthrough came, you know, Pete Carroll's pretty crippled. <laughs> um, and I'm a little bit crippled too, but I wasn't as crippled then as I was now. 
And I did pride myself on, I'm five foot four and three quarters, and right now I'm 145 pounds, so I've never been an impressive looking athlete, but I was good. Mm -hmm. I could play ball. I was one of those crazy little guys. And all of us crazy little guys listening, we know who we are. Because right. we're like, and that's why my neck's all screwed up today, because I didn't mind diving, jumping, doing whatever it took. Coming around the crease, getting cleaned out by the, you know, crease defenseman. Oh, wasn't that fun? Um, but Pete Carroll used to disappear at lunchtime the first few days. I'm like, what the hell? What's going on? And luckily, I'm also good with old lady secretaries and everything else. And I figured out that Pete Carroll and a bunch of other people, including Ken Norton Jr., um, his linebacker coach then, as now. And remember, when Pete Carroll there, what was famous? They're linebackers. It wasn't, it wasn't running back you anymore. It was, it was middle linebacker. It was linebacker you. And so anyway, this old lady conspired with this old guy who was the equipment manager to get me, like, shoes and and kit and i think he had i think they were girls shoes because nobody wore a size like eight basketball <laughs> shoe in the usc of, uh, you know athletic department so he, he brought me these girl shoes but i went down i followed them down to the gym like when they left i just fucked and i went after them and we ended up in this old this old girls gym it was like short so it's perfect for like older guys you know full corporate short mm -hmm. and i played with pete and ken norton and I was the Steve Nash. I was an assist machine that, you know, those days. And, and you know what? Um, even though I didn't know anything, Pete Carroll respected me that day as an athlete. And um, after that, he started telling me stuff. Wow. Um, you know, and you know what? Because, you know what? He's a short guy who couldn't make it because he was a short guy. And we understood each other. And even if I didn't speak the language of football, I understood the language of excellence and self and mm -hmm. being short. So it's a cool story. Yeah, I was gonna. That's what I was gonna ask. If your your size, because he was an undersized guy, and it's one of the reasons he didn't really make it, I guess, um, as an athlete. Uh, did that? Did that bond you two? I guess, or did that help you understand him more? Well, it did make made me understand him. I mean, I'm a guy. I have this thing I call the theory of originals, where if you don't slot in somewhere, you go find your own slot. You know, that makes a whole lot more sense. But he grew up playing this team game where there were places for people to fit and they had to be a certain way. And he found another way to do it. I certainly, certainly, you know, and what he was was an original thinker. And um, I've been doing this job for 36 years and there have been so few of them out there. And I live for that moment when you just see people who see things more the way they really are than the way they're supposed to be or the way they have to be. And football, 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 that is the, that's the bastion of the way they should be, the way they're supposed to be, the way things are done. And here's this guy and he's done everything different. And, you know, and in the same way, you know, kind of making a complete circle, you know, Todd Marinovich, who so much railed against that kind of coaching and that kind of whole thing, you know, he didn't hate his father for that either. He loved his father. Mm -hmm. And so that's another thing. Um, you know, looking into these things, there's, there's other viewpoints that we can find that are maybe better than the cliche even. You know, I think it's a lot more cool that Todd Marinich loves his father and named his baby after his father. You don't do that when you hate someone. Right, right. You mentioned you've been doing this for 
you say 36 years? Well, since I was 21 and I'm 57. How, um, how's your, how, how have you changed? How has your reporting, uh, I guess, methods changed over that time? Well, everything's changed because um, I earlier spoke of finding that bowl of details um, that you then create, a, a, you know, that collage, that found art thing that's a story. You know, and I think I am that. I am that construction of all these different people. And, you know, I call it a constellation of reality. You know, we have Cassiopeia on the belt and all those things in the sky. But everybody's got their own set of realities and they make them work in this constellation. And um, you may not agree with them, but they agree with themselves and you're not going to change their opinion. And like, and I, I mean, more than anything else, I also see how conflicting viewpoints uh, about the same thing lead me to believe that there's no great answer to stuff, you know, that you've got to work them out and that all these, like they say, they say, you know, why do you have to have two kids? Is it really better to have two kids? Can you have one kid? You know, how's that work? You know, that's just one thing. You know, there's just so many things in there that are just like, and so much of it that messes us up because, you know, they're truisms and they're not really true. Two can't live cheaper than one. I'm sorry. Girls like want all this, like, they want Kleenex. I mean, can't they blow their nose on a paper towel? You know, <laughs> so things are different. Everything's different. And, um, and I, that's what I've learned in these years. And I mean, unfortunately, I've become a little less able to deal with the things of everyday life that we're supposed to deal with. Um, but that's a small price to pay for understanding. And honestly, one, when I left college, I just felt like such an idiot. I, I, I was great and had all these awards or whatever, but I knew I didn't know nothing. I didn't know nothing. And I was just fooling everybody. And, uh, and this is just a great way to continue to grow. And, um, I can feel self-righteous about it. And then I've learned enough to know that no one even gives a shit what I think. So, except maybe for you today. Um, so I've got that. I've got it in perspective that knowing things doesn't always help because the bully's always going to pound you in a bar, even if you like say something really smart to him. Mm-hmm. You're going to get pounded. Right. So it's best sometimes to run. <laughs> are you Are you still interested in the same types of stories as far as reporting goes? Well, you know, it's very interesting. From day one, people have handed me an assignment. And um, I think all but a couple of five stories I've ever done have been assignments. Mm -hmm. And one of the stories I had the most trouble with ever was I was assigned to do Kobe um, back when he was uh, post post Colorado and Mm -hmm. thinking of not resigning. And I got to and I loved Kobe. I had been that was my only hobby watching the Lakers. Basically, I had a son and a wife, and I just watched the Lakers sometimes. I taped it. And, um, and I love Kobe so much that I wrote like this 1,500-word false lead on the top of the story about the portentous summer, summer games, which, you know, was a year before the Olympics that nobody cared. And my editor was like, oh, Mike, and I'm like, I know. It starts like here, like 1,500 words down. And that's where it's – but so it's hard doing stories that you care about, and I kind of like stories – that I don't have any knowledge of, but that contain the elements I'm looking for, which is, uh, which are um, 
you know, the elements of a novel. I want a story with scene, setting, characters, you know, that's what I'm looking for. I don't want to really do a story about a businessman unless it's Mark Cuban. Mm-hmm. You know, and I spent three weeks with him right after he got his $7 billion. It was like one of the most fun times I ever had. Um, I was with him when he bought his, his what is it, 20,000 square foot house. And then he bought the Gulf Stream, and then he bought the Mavericks. And I was not there when he closed the deal for the Mavericks, but he called me from the Gulf Stream and told me, well, it's done. We've got the Mavericks. I mean, it was the greatest couple of days ever. We played like wiffle ball in his like empty mansion. And so, but that's, a, that's the only businessman story I've really ever done. Mm-hmm. Um, so you look for those elements. Yeah. Uh, you have a novel out now as well. It's called High Tolerance. Um, I'm always interested uh, in, in journalists who then go on and, and write fiction, and I'm curious, um, writing process, because um, it's a completely different mindset. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think it took, it took me to my second book. I mean, uh, my first book was for Grove Atlantic with Morgan Entrican, who's an old, like, somewhat of a party pal and friend of mine back in the 80s. Um, and he likes to say journalists can't write novels. You know, and he said that even as he said, but I'll take this. Um, so fuck you, Morgan. Um, but uh, so I wrote the second one. It's true. The first one, it's not good. It's amazing character studies, but it doesn't have a story, a good story arc. Um, but this time around, it does. And and what this has, and it's great because I, the first chapter uh, is a little bit loosely based on this this thing Easy E had with some peop- some rappers called the Brown Side. You know, I've done the work. I know how the people talk. I've transcribed their stuff. I know how, and I know how the stories work. And I know about life now after 36 years. I have some things to say. You know, the Esquire thing, the meaning of life, that whole thing. I, you know, I helped start that, even though I don't do it anymore much. Um, But, you know, this whole notion that there's knowledge to be gained out there if you're out there constantly looking for it which I am, and you're open to it, and you're open to be like, oh, wow, I didn't know that. Maybe what I think is wrong, you know, which is the most important thing for any journalist to feel. So, you know, it's all been this great, like, hunt and that continues, you know, as I try to understand, like, how things are. And so doing this novel, you know, is great. I decided in the middle, I wanted, you know, you got to have a strong female character these days. And I'd interviewed a million celebrities from Angelina Jolie to Julia Child, you know, but um, I didn't have enough. So I, I got this thing where I interviewed, I spent three days and nights with Paris Hilton, like in her house. Like, and she was, on, I, I don't think Esquire loved this story. They ran it um, in their magazine, but it's not on the website anywhere. You can't find it. But she, like I said, I want to know what it's like to go to a place and be chased. And we, she did that for me. And I like hung out with her at her house with her boyfriend. And I went to her birthday party. And, you know, so, and so this guy who's in the rap business, this black guy who kind of never reads, read the first part of my story, which is the easy E rap guy. And he's like, this is like right on. This could have happened. And, you know, of course it has like, I made up the, you know, you take reality and then you add stuff to it to make it more exciting. And then, you know, some people from Hollywood read the um, central section, you know, about the second section about the, I have, there's this, um, you know, she's a superstar, a young triple threat who sings and does albums and all this stuff. And she gets embroiled with a sex tape, Um, you know, so, and then the third character is this father slash coach. 
you know, who's a writer producer, and it all happens during three days of the writer's strike of 2008. So it could, I love stories when they have like a beginning, middle, and end. So those three days enabled me to do that. And then I got to use all these, I mean, I have smoked pot with Snoop. I hung out with, with Ice Cube. In fact, he gave me the motto for my thing, harnessing the means of production. That's from an Ice Cube interview in the early 80s when he was telling me, you know, he wanted to start his own label. And that's what I've done with my book company to start my own label. So that's what I love about the novel. You can take all this stuff that you have and use it for something. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, we've been talking with Mike Sager, uh, a writer at large for Esquire magazine and editor and publisher of the Sager Group, which we will link to uh, that website on our website. Uh, Mike, thanks so much for joining me. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. Hey, thanks for having me. Clearly, I don't get to talk much in my room here, so uh, thanks for letting me uh, run my mouth some. Keep up the good work, too. Thank you. We've been talking with Mike Sager, a writer at large for Esquire magazine and the editor and publisher of the Sager Group. As usual, we've linked to many of Sager's stories on our website. That's at www.gangrythepodcast.com. You can also find out more about Sager by visiting his website. That is mikesager.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter at gangrypodcast. That's at G-A-N-G-R-E-Y-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. You can download Gangry the Podcast on iTunes for free. Just go to the iTunes store and search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. Gangry the Podcast is now available on Stitcher Radio On Demand. Stitcher is an award-winning, free mobile app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows on demand. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at Stitcher.com or in the app stores. Gangry the Podcast is produced in the studios of WRDL 88.9 at Ashland University and is supported by the Department of Journalism and Digital Media. Our intro music comes from Noah Heyman. This episode was produced, edited, and hosted by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us.